This is WCN. The Whole Care Network. You talk. We listen. Content presented on the following podcast is for information purposes only. Views and opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent views of the Whole Care Network. Always consult your physician for medical and fitness advice and always consult your attorney for legal advice. And thank you for listening to the Whole Care Network. So years ago, this woman was sitting to my right, and then we were passing notes back and forth to each other like old friends, even though we were new friends. Today, I get to talk to Jill Crunkleton, a friend of mine for years and a woman who has worked with people in the worst moments of their life for more than 20 years. Today, she's going to talk to us about the ideas of hope, spelunking into emotion, and what it is like this year. I'm happy to have Jill Crunkleton today with me on Anchor and Flame. So Jill, tell me about your work history as a caregiver and somebody who works with big populations. Okay. I, I, I take my 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 work experience all the way back to some volunteer experience. I started volunteering at a local rape crisis center in Rome, Georgia. And I trained to sit with people who had been sexually assaulted in an emergency room. So yeah, I was probably about 22 when I did that. And then that eventually turned into a job. Um, and I worked there for a while. I continued to, to do that kind of frontline work. I also trained volunteers to do that kind of frontline work. I did community education, I did victim advocacy, and I worked at a domestic violence shelter. And I was there for, gosh, three or four years. I can't remember. Working with women who had been survivors of intimate partner violence, helping them, you know, they come into the shelter, helping them kind of figure out a plan financially, how to leave their partner, you know, what to do with their kids. A lot of them had other kinds of issues. Uh, Domestic violence often goes hand in hand with a long history of sexual abuse, physical abuse, drug abuse. So there was in poverty, there, there was just... If it was just domestic violence that I was dealing with, it would have been so much easier, but it was just this whole sort of perfect storm of a lot of different things. So after that, I was like, oh, well, looks like I'm doing some social services kind of work. Maybe I should go to school for that since I only had a degree in art. (laughs) Went to social work school. And after that, I decided that, you know, just sexual assault and domestic violence just weren't nearly dramatic enough. I'm going to go work in hospice. Let's just go straight to working with dying people. And actually, I'll tell you, it was actually easier than the work I had been doing previously. There was oddly a lot more joy in that work. Yeah. So I worked for a hospice, local hospice for 12 years. I worked, I started out as a a PRN. That means like a substitute social worker. I would fill in for people when they're on maternity leave. Then eventually I got hired full time and I split my time between being a grief counselor with their bereavement program And then I also kind of developed a little program called Creative Interventions. It was like the weird social worker. I had this weird skill set. I told you I had a degree in art, right? Well, I also happened to play uh, guitar and sing. And so when I was a substitute social worker and I had 
patients, especially patients that had dementia. So they were really well managed. They didn't have any psychosocial needs. I didn't need to like help their families fill out Medicare paperwork or anything like that. But they also weren't candidates for like life review and counseling because they had communication issues or cognition issues. I just started bringing my guitar with me because I, I just thought, I don't know, you're kind of stuck in a bed all day. That's got to be really boring. You can't really communicate in ways that are what we call, and I put air quotes around this, normal. So I was like, well, let's see what music, what happens with music. And it was sort of amazing. And I had a very forward-thinking leadership team who thought this was awesome. And we got families loved it, patients loved it. Leadership team was like, you want to do more of this? Absolutely. So we kind of got this whole sort of program off the ground. And I would mostly do music, but also, you know, if there are people who wanted to try to do some art or anything off the wall, anything off the wall that I could do with a patient to increase their quality of life. Because, you know, when you're sick, when you're dying, like your world gets really small. So any kind of novelty that comes in is just precious. (laughs) Or so I learned. At first I was like, I didn't, I kind of couldn't believe anyone was paying me to do this. And I almost didn't, I knew I enjoyed my work, but I don't think I really appreciated the value of what I did. It took a while before I stopped having like an inferiority complex about what I did because I wasn't like a nurse or I wasn't like, I don't know. I felt like what I was doing was icing on the cake, but not the actual cake. So <laughs> anyway, that was a long answer to a short question. So yeah, so that's my my background in caring professions. When you look back at all of the things that you have done over time, you said it's the icing, not the cake itself. Do you think that families would portray it that same way? No, no, I don't think that they would. And it, like I said, it took me a long time to figure that out. Now, granted, when someone's having a pain crisis or a breathing crisis, Maslow's hierarchy of needs says, says that takes precedent. But I learned that connection, recreation, fun, play, connection to spirituality, those were all kinds of things that I brought. And though they're just as vital. I had a mentor who does a lot of work with people with dementia and he talks about, you know, there's things that we do in order to stay alive. Like we brush our teeth and we eat healthy maybe, and we make sure that we're warm enough and clothed and fed and all of those kinds of things. But those aren't the reasons why we live. We, we do those things in order to be able to participate in this other stuff that really gives our lives value. Uh, things like, social connection with others, recreation, art, music, like those are the things that we live for. So there's things we do to live and there's reasons why we want to live. And I realize those things are really inextricable. You can have everything you need to be alive and not really care if you're alive or dead if you don't have things that bring you joy. That's an interesting approach. And I think it. lots of people talk about hospice and think of that before they experience it as a family member or as a caregiver in any sense and think of it as just weeping and wailing and all of the trauma and concern and crisis that they envision sometimes because they have witnessed deaths in other circumstances that didn't have the support of hospice. So to hear you say that hospice in some ways is really joyful work might be a surprise to some people. Do you think that's unique to the organization you were at? Or do you think that is a more universal truth when hospice is done well? 
I think that is definitely a more universal truth when hospice is done well. Um, most of us learn about dying from the movies. <laughs> and the movies are natural. And movie, you know, narratives are naturally compressed and they don't show you all the details. And things I learned about hospice, learned from my time in hospice is that dying is, it, it, yeah, it's, it's sometimes it's much less dramatic than is portrayed. Uh, both in good ways and bad ways. There's a lot of times where it is like literally boring. Like there's so much drudgery and boredom sometimes that comes along with dying and caregiving and being sick and being a person who is dying. But then there's also, there's all these pockets of joy or possibilities when a family is supported and, and, a, and a hospice team can make all the difference. They can kind of make or break. If they support a family in a good way, um, so that they have the skills and the confidence they need and also encourage them to live a little. I, I always, every time I go to a party, you want to you you bring a party to a screeching halt. They're like, well, so what do you do for a living? I'm like, I work for hospice, right? And then, you know, everyone's like, and then they all were like, oh, it takes a special kind of, oh, I could never do what you do. Oh, this. And, and I tell people, I'm like, actually, you'd be super surprised. My job is not all doom and gloom. I forget that the world is full of jerks because I watch people being kind every single day and finding these little pockets of peace or pockets of joy or pockets of humor. So, yeah. That reminds me of at one point when I was working at a hospice, the CNA, the person who came and did baths and that sort of thing, would also sneak this family ice cream. Because it turns out that when you're on hospice, your dietary needs are joy-based far more than the, if they just have a sandwich, they will be on their feet and 45 years old again. And so there is, there's a ton of little opportunities like that, which I think is really interesting. So how was the COVID year in comparison to what you had spent years experiencing in all of the rest of sitting side by side with people when they were having really difficult times. It was so hard. It was so hard because, especially at the very beginning of the pandemic, because there was so little that we knew. And so we were so concerned about contact precautions. So the first thing that went at my hospice was the creative interventions program. Couldn't take my guitar in. Singing, singing couldn't happen. Um, and like, especially the more we learned about how COVID was transmitted, singing actually became a dangerous thing because it pulled air from deep in your lungs and sprayed it all over a room. My favorite work is to work with people with dementia. I have special training in that. I, you know, I, it's just, it's a great joy. I always say going to a memory care unit and hanging out with people is like the best game of whose line is it anyway. But a big part of working with people with dementia is touch. Touch is one of the ways that we help orient people who have impaired cognition. It's just this the whole sensory motor part of the brain. The first thing I do when I approach someone with dementia would be to like wave, like make sure I'm in their line of sight. I wave with my hand close to my face and then I hold my hand out like, hey, you want to shake hands? And I wait. And if they put their hand out, then I immediately go to them and, and take their hand and then come alongside them. And like, that is such a huge part of, and all the, of like how I approach people and how I know to, to care for them. And all of a sudden I can't touch anybody. 
In fact, I couldn't go to memory care units because they were locked down. So all of a sudden, my job went from this half happy, because remember, half of my job was being a grief counselor. But this other part of my job, this creative intervention stuff. So my half happy, half sad job, all of a sudden was just all sad. All sad. Uh, All grief counseling all the time. The next part that made that hard was suddenly... So in grief counseling and hospice, we are looking at families and the the social worker, the field social worker who's working with that family while that patient is in care before they die. The social worker is assessing the family and they're trying to figure out what's going on with this family. Are they likely to have something that we call complicated grief? I could do a whole lecture on what that means, but just suffice to say that we rank families low, medium, or high risk for complicated grief. Now, all grief is hard. All grief is, I say, all grief is loud like a jet engine, but I don't worry about the jet engine unless it starts going thump, 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 right? So we're assessing that. Well, all of a sudden, everyone has complicated grief. I like to think of complicated grief as like grief plus, like grief plus concurrent mental health issues, grief plus current uh, history of abuse or grief plus substance abuse or lack of a social support network or all like grief plus something else hard. All of a sudden, everyone had complicated grief because everyone had a limited support system. And for some people, the the circumstances of the death were drastically altered instead of like being able to have mama at home and we're all surrounding her and loving on her she's trapped in a nursing home and we can't visit, or she's trapped in a hospital, we can't visit, or she's dying of COVID and we're having to be in gowns and gloves and masks and like this distancing thing just made everything hard. Then we couldn't have normal funerals. You couldn't normally like after a funeral or after someone dies, you're surrounded by people who love you, who are literally physically supporting you, touching you, hugging you, cooking for you, all of these things, poof, gone all of it. And then there's things that we do for ourselves to cope with our grief, like just stuff like I'm having a bad day. I'm going to go to the mall and window shop, or I'm going to take myself out for a big fatty fat waffle or whatever. Gone. Poof. Can't do any of that. Need to stay in my house. Need to stay away from people. Need to not hug. So the acuity of the work that I was doing suddenly just went through the roof. So yeah. COVID was hard. And then on top of that, my hospital system, and you were a big part of this decision, and it was a wonderful decision. I'm so proud of my hospital system for how we handled COVID. We had to make horrible, gut-wrenching decisions. Well, I say we, I wasn't part of these decisions because I was way down in the chain of command, but about visitation and safety. And But I know you were part of some of those decisions, and it's gut-wrenching. Uh, We know that people have better health outcomes when they have visitors, when they have friends and family, but every person who comes to visit is a potential vector to spread disease to the public at large, to staff, to their own family. So we had to lock down a lot of our visitation. So because we recognize that suddenly everyone has complicated grief, not just people in hospice. Our hospital system asked our bereavement program, because our hospice was part of this larger hospital system, to provide some community grief follow-up. Normally, our bereavement counselors only follow up with families who've died in our hospice, who have been receiving our hospice services. Well, suddenly, we are following up. We're making, and we're not doing a ton of work or a ton per family, but we are calling, I call it the emotional next of kin. 
the emotional next of kin of every single person who died in our hospital system, whether they died of COVID or something else. And we were contacting one week after a death. So you're getting, you're, you're having just one after another, after another, after another of people who are in the most acute part of their grief. And some of them are angry because they couldn't visit. Some of them are just in shock. Some of them have lost multiple family members. Some of them are hospitalized. I called people who were in the hospital who answered me from ICU. And then three weeks later, I, I called their next of kin. I mean, it was just, it was unimaginable. It, like I said, I, I've worked with sexual assault, domestic violence in hospice for 12 years. And this past year was some of the most traumatic and difficult work that I have ever done in my life. So tell me, as a professional caregiver, how do you sustain yourself in the normal times? And you talk about how families had their whole system just disappear. Everybody had their system disappear. So in that way of self-care and, and professional sustainment, what was your kind of baseline system and what happened to that as you went through? <laughs> There's a kind of an adage if you're in a caring profession, especially like a therapist or something like that, it's like you need to have friends who don't do that kind of work. Because otherwise you just sit around with each other and like talk shop. And I had a, like, my life was so rich. I didn't really appreciate it. Like not to tune my own horn, but I had kind of built this genius system for myself and it was not deliberate. It wasn't like, oh, this is what I need in order to be healthy. It's just like, those are the things I gravitated towards. But like, you know, before COVID, you know, I said I had a job that was half happy, half sad. So that was very self-sustaining in a lot of ways. But then I had all kinds of things that I was doing in my personal life. Um, uh, my family were sort of hobby obsessive, like we we're ne never ever bored. We have wide ranging interests. So like I took martial arts and I belonged to a gym and I did community theater and I had friends that I did, you know, music with and I helped run the youth group at my church. Man, you want to really balance out life in hospice work with a bunch of middle school and high school kids. That was like hard work, but incredibly life-giving. It was like, oh, young people. It was good. So I had all of these things. You know, I have extensive, I have a big friend network. I'm a raging extrovert. So I'm always going and doing and seeing and playing and hanging. And but I and I was heavily involved in my church, not just with the youth group, but you know, just, so it's like, I had these things like that, that cared for my physical self, for my emotional self, for my spiritual self, and for my social self. And then COVID came and pretty much all of that evaporated. So that was another part that made this year so hard. And I was like, there's, you know, Netflix is fun for a minute, but it's like, it's kind of like trying to subsist on only McDonald's when really you just need a good salad every now and then, like maybe every day. So I want to hear a little bit more about your approach to dementia care. Because that's been something that I know has been really important to you for a really long time. And I think some of the people who listen to this podcast have folks with dementia, either that they're actively caring for or that are just in their world. So you talking about like waving and then extending your hand to shake it would not have occurred to me as somebody who, who doesn't have specific training in dementia. What are average people kind of missing that can make the life of somebody with dementia a little, little better, a little less, a little more towards the happy, sad balance. Okay. Okay. Right on. Well, first thing I think we have to do is get this concept that people with dementia are people. 
And there is no point in a person's cognitive decline where they stop being a person and start being like a piece of furniture or something. They're never a thing. Uh, They're never an object. They're always a subject. People, all people have emotions and they will have emotions until they die. Now, when you have brain failure, which is, I, I, I like to think of dementia as brain failure. Like we have heart failure, lung failure. And when you start really digging in and thinking about just how much your brain does for you, I don't know. It's just, yeah. When you have brain failure, you might lose your ability to regulate your emotions, right? So you might come over here and kick me in the shin, or you might accidentally kick me in the shin. And then I'm going to have emotions, but I'm going to have pain. And then I'm going to have emotions about that. But then my, my, the front part of my prefrontal cortex is going to be like, oh, Heather didn't mean to do that, you know, and I'm going to talk myself down. I'm going to be able to calm myself down. Well, if I have brain failure, I might not be able to do that, but I still have emotions. So like when we, we can make a pro, we can contribute to someone's emotional well-being, or we can frustrate them. At no point does any person ever stop having emotions and we can greatly influence whether they're having positive emotions or negative emotions by how we approach this person. The next thing I want people to know is that all behavior is communication. All behavior. So I have no brain failure, right? I'm a perfectly true blue, cognitively okay human being. So like, let's say like, well, you and I were in meetings together. You know, we would be talking sometimes and passing notes during these sometimes very boring meetings where I couldn't understand what was happening half the time. Or I might get up and go to the bathroom just because I was bored out of my skull. And nobody would think anything weird about that. But if I had dementia and did the same thing, I would be having what are called behaviors. So a lot of times when someone with, you know, I I have quirks, people with dementia have behaviors. All behavior is a form of communication. So when a person with dementia is doing something that makes other people uncomfortable, we're just like, well, that's just the dementia. Or maybe that person is expressing an unmet need and boredom is also an unmet need. I might get up and wander around because I'm bored. Because all people are people until they die and they need stimulation in varying amounts. So those are some things that I want people to realize. The other thing is, the thing about dementia, if you think about almost every other like terminal disease, and dementia is a terminal disease. It is chronic and progressive and fatal. We think about like lung cancer or you think about, I don't know, I'm just thinking about all the different ways that human beings can die, right? Most of those things come with real physical suffering. You have pain, you have dyspnea, which is the fancy word for I can't breathe, which is very uncomfortable. You have nausea and vomiting. Dementia, like you really, like it doesn't hurt, you know, it doesn't make you It doesn't make you short of breath. It doesn't make you nauseous. All of the suffering that comes along with dementia is almost all emotional. So sometimes that some of that stuff is internal. Like if I get um, my days and nights mixed up and I get disoriented, then I become afraid, right? Or I get lost in my house or lost in my neighborhood, then I'm afraid. Or if I'm if I have just enough cognitive change that I and I happen to be aware of it. Then I might experience, like I, I like all of a sudden I can't remember your name and I know I should know your name. And so I'm embarrassed. So the suffering I, or I realize that other people realize that I'm not right. So I'm embarrassed or ashamed or 
So most of the suffering that comes along with dementia is purely emotional. Because of that, it's highly treatable in how other people interact with people with dementia. So it's like, if I forget your name and you're like, I'm Heather, and you like keep going as if no big deal, no big deal, and you comfort me and you help alleviate my shame, all of a sudden I'm not suffering anymore. But if you're like, I can't believe you, you, then all of a sudden you can heap more shame on me and make me feel worse. So can I interrupt you there for just a second? So the question, do you remember who I am? Grandma, do you remember who I am? So not helpful. (laughs) Like that's like, you want to set someone up for failure? Hey, grandma. Who am I? All right, now look at this picture. Now, which one is this? No, please don't do this. And, and it, but it's our, it's our natural inclination because we want them to remember us. We want them to know our name and it hurts. I mean, that's part of the grief of losing someone, someone who has this disease. And when you're a friend or a family member of this person, we watch these things going away and it causes us grief and we want to be special. We want them to remember our name and I was like, I had so many patients with dementia and 99.99999 blind over it percent of the time. They did not remember my name. But when I walked in, I could see on their face something. Like they knew they liked me. And so I said, if someone remembers that my name is friend or my name is love, then they have remembered my name. And that is all they need to remember. But that's a big attitude shift. And it's, you know, it's much easier for me to say that about people that I'm not related to. But I, I've had plenty of friends and family who have also had this. So it's, it's just, but it's like adjusting that whole, that whole attitude. So there are some really, can I like, can I make a plug for like my favorite dementia teacher? Absolutely. So there's a woman named Tipa Snow. I know that's like a really weird name. T-E-E-P-A uh, Snow. And she has this whole thing called positive approach to care. She, if you Google her or go on YouTube and look her up, there are like hundreds of videos of her doing training. She does trainings all over the country. She has a, if you go to her Facebook page, she does a live stream like every morning. She's like an occupational therapist and she just gets it. And she understands how the brain works and she's understanding what's happening in people's brains. And it make when you start listening to her, like, the quote unquote weird stuff that people do, all of a sudden you start, oh, that's why they're doing that because they're compensating for this or this is what's kind of sort of probably happening in their brain. Starts to make sense. And so she's got all these great strategies and she's entertaining. Like that's the other thing. Like I'd sit around and watch Tipa Snow videos on a Friday night. Not, I mean, that also tells you a little bit about me, but <laughs> but I mean, she's entertaining. I will tell you, she she does cuss a little. Um, especially when she she's a really great actress. So she'll be, you know, Tipa the trainer and then she'll like switch it on into Tipa with dementia demonstrating and she's not above throwing some cuss words in because people with dementia sometimes throw in cuss words. You have talked a little bit about this. As people's worlds get smaller, let's talk about what hope looks like. Mm. Because as you said, we've learned a lot about what being elderly and dying and all of that looks like from television. And there's always this moment where the family has to heave the heavy sigh and be like, okay, we're packing all of our hope away now. Mm. So Mm. does hope for 
patients who are approaching the end of life and their families change? Mm. Or do we always hope that we're going to be 35 and healthy again? (laughs) Oh, I don't know. I'll be really honest. And this is probably going to surprise you because I don't think we've ever talked about this. Hope is a thing that I struggle with. Sometimes hope is very annoying. I know I'm not supposed to say that. I'm supposed to be like, hope never dies and hope is blah, blah, blah. And like, hope is for a good good day or a nice visit or good ice cream. I don't know why I'm obsessing on ice cream today. That seems to be my point. Sometimes like hope is, sometimes I find hope to be counterproductive depending on what we're hoping for. You know, hope is the thing that keeps, I I don't know. I, I, I think about like, I had a friend died by suicide when I was a teenager. And I had this, I've noticed after he died, every time I saw a car that looked like his, my chin jerked around, like looking, and I was gazing in that, that, that window, hoping it was him. And I was like, hope is not something that I can, it was like, hope feels like an involuntary reflex for me. And it was one that I wished I could let go of at times. And I I have seen families hope for quote-unquote impossible things. And what they end up doing is setting themselves up for a whole lot of misery or they're not not kind of facing into the reality of what's going on. And so what they end up doing is missing a lot of the present opportunities that they have because they're too so busy hoping for a miracle of some sort. So I think hope can be kind of a a double-edged thing. I think managing your hope or redefining, it's like, I I remember, so one of the things, I I had kind of mentioned this, one of the things um, that made my COVID year even more difficult was that my dad was dying of cancer. And I ended up having to leave my job for a few months to go. And I went from being a professional caregiver to being a family caregiver for my dad. Early on, when we knew he was sick, but he hadn't gotten a formal diagnosis, but I knew because I know these things, I was like, I had uh, read Atul Gawande's book, uh, Being Mortal. I don't know if you're familiar with that. You know, I was going to be my dad's best social worker. <laughs> but I did, I had this conversation with him. I was like, dad, tell me what a good day looks like. What do you need to be able to do to say you had a good day? And that's one of the questions that uh, Dr. Gawande suggests that we ask people. And he told me, he said, I need to be able to hang out with my friends. I was like, okay. My dad is, was a, a brilliant, brilliant man. He was a pilot and he also built airplanes as his hobby. He built three airplanes, which like, holy crap. <laughs> I just like, I don't have that kind of patience. I did not, I got a lot of stuff from him. I did not get those genes. So, and he was always like working on things in his shop. He had a big shop and tinkering. There's all kind, of, and he played music. He played in the bands. I told you we, we Crunkletons are hobby obsessive. So when he said, I just need to be able to, I said, you don't need to be able to fly your plane. No, I don't need to be, you don't need to be able to work in your shop. No, you don't need to be able to do a band job. No, I need to be able to hang out with my friends. So we began to adjust our expectations of what did success mean? What did we hope for? Did we hope that his lung cancer would just magically like evaporate out of his body? Well, that'd be cool. Did we think that that was even a remote possibility? Not really. So we did adjust our hope as the trajectory of his illness changed. I don't know if that answers your question. I think it's, it does. 
but I kind of want to build on it a little bit because it's the trajectory of illness mm-hmm. and how different family members, different caregivers based on what you know or what you hope for or how invested you are in the miracle versus the day, that sort of thing, that people get to the part as family members at different points Mm -hmm. where they think, oh, I need to be conscious of how little time there is left here. Do I want to say, spend that time saying everything's going to be okay? Or do I want to spend that time saying thank you, saying I love you, saying please forgive me, saying you're forgiven? So talk about how families kind of go through that as individuals and as a group. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see. So... It is true. Like everybody does, like, you know, we say this is a grief count, like everybody does grief differently. Everybody does illness differently. What, and this is not from any book. This is merely from my experience. Like I noticed that like family members fall into these different roles, right? So there's the doer. Uh, the doer does things. They like fill prescriptions, they make meals and they like, they tidy up and they do laundry and they, they change people and turn people and do all this kinds of stuff, right? It's hard to get them to sit still and to have those kind of conversations. Then you have family members who are, I call them the beers. They are the people who, they can be in a totally chaotic, dirty house and they kind of won't notice it all, but man, they can sit by someone at the bedside and just hold their hand, hang out with them, totally nonplussed by like all that's going on, the fact that this person's emaciated or or whatever. Then there's the boss. Um, Those are people who are not really good at doing or being Oftentimes they are people who lead busy lives already. They might be far away, but so when they show up, they want to tell everybody else what to do. Oftentimes because they sort of feel bad that they're not there doing things, that that's how they're proving that they're involved and that they love people. There's the joker who can't really do anything. They're not in charge. They can't sit in uncomfortable silence. So they make jokes about everything, but it's a valuable, it's a valuable skill. And then there are the runners. And they're the people who can't deal with it at all. And they don't, they're the people who don't show up. I think the beers are the people who kind of come to grips first because they are often the people who are the most in tune emotionally with that, that person who's dying. The doers are so busy. Like, again, that's a, kind of, a lot of the doers. Like, and let me tell you this. You need about 15 doers to every beer in a, in a crisis situation. <laughs> You only need like one or two beers and one boss and like a couple of jokers, but you need lots of doers because there's lots to be done to care for a person. Um, and so I, I don't want you to think I'm, I'm dogging any one of those roles, really. You know, the doers, main, one of the ways they manage their anxiety about everything is to continually do. And it's, there's stuff that they need to do. And then they'll, there's the stuff that they just do. And so like if you just looking at those different personalities and kind of how they're coping, what their go to for dealing with this impending loss, you can kind of imagine like they they have all these different trajectories. Gone through the ideas of beers and doers and jokers. And of course, like everybody else who's listening to this, I have put myself in buckets in different degrees about which one of those people I think I might be. How do they experience 
not as necessarily as a group, but like the first person who kind of sees it and the last person who kind of sees it. Talk a little bit about what it is you've seen over time about what impact that has on them. On the person itself, themselves, or, or on the patient? Not on the patient, on the caregiver. Okay. Oh, gosh. I don't even know how to answer that particular question, honestly. Again, kind of going with the beer is often the person who kind of recognizes, I think, in a lot of ways, things first. Because, again, they're emotionally... Into- it, it also depends on the patient. If the patient is someone, like, if they have been schooled all their lives that they are to maintain a, a strong front... You know, we're going to fight this. We're 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 a Viking mentality. We're going to go down fighting, kind of thing. That actually will set the tone for a lot of the family. But yeah, the first I I have seen that a lot. Where like one person in the family gets it, and it's exhausting. I mean, it's exhausting to be that person because everybody else is like rah rah, sispumba, we're going to beat this, la la la. And wow, that actually really worked. Um, <laughs> <laughs> It's exhausting. And if the patient, the person who is actually dying, is also like gets it, like and is facing, I call it facing into the wind, and nobody else is, like that's incredibly isolating for them. Like I know that that was kind of a, that actually happened with my dad. There were certain people who just didn't get it. And dad didn't like being around those people because it was, it was exhausting for them. And it was kind of exhausting for me too. Because dad and I were very much on the same page from the get-go. I'm a good beer. You know, I may not see anything that needs to be done. And I'm struggling to like, okay, how do I, I don't, I'm really good at feelings, but I don't know how to change a bed, like (laughs) with a person in it or, but yeah, I think it, it can be very exhausting for both those people. And then it's sad because, you know, you want to come together as a family and then you have these other people who it creates this huge conflict. And then it, you know, of course, we always go into the question of there are always different levels. I think there's a, you know, there's like levels of conversation and there's like what I'm trying to say to you and then what I'm trying to say about myself, right? Like people who have a long, who, who are having a hard time coming to this reality, like this is really happening. It's because if I admit what's happening, then I am a bad daughter, wife, husband, brother, whatever. I am disloyal. I am unfaithful. Wishing this to end. Yeah. And so it's like, it's like whatever it is that I've, you know, it's like, I think of things a lot in terms of the Enneagram. So I think about those different, if you know what Enneagram, there's all these kind of different personality types. So it's like, if I admit that this is what's happening, it proves that I'm immoral or that I don't love or that I'm not successful or that I'm just buying into everybody's stuff or that I'm not smart enough to deal with this or I'm not loyal enough to deal with it. Like, so I think a lot of that has to do with I'm protecting myself from this horrible thing I don't want to face, this pain, this loss, this grief. But I'm also sort of trying to protect my my self-concept. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like. I am a good daughter. I am a good husband. I am a good this. I, you know, we're, I'm not going to give up on you. And, and that's, I think that's really hard. And it, and that's, it's the other thing I noticed a lot in my, in grief counseling is like, you know, I read medical charts like all the time, whenever I'm going to call someone, I'm going to go through, I'm going to read this patient's medical chart and kind of get an idea of the trajectory of their illness. Like, did they come on hospice like two days ago and then just died? Or had they been with us for six months? Like, 
And it's so interesting because, I mean, sometimes I would get these charts and I mean, very clearly I could see, you know, the decline over time. It was a long, you know, drawn out sort of thing. And then I talked to a bereaved and it like to them, it feels like, like a car wreck because they didn't see it coming because they couldn't see it coming. And it, it like, even though it's like, there was all these things indicating and people trying to talk to them. And then it's like, it was a shock. It was a shock that this person died. Well, he had always bounced back. I, I don't know if that gets at your... Yeah, it, it does in part. And I think you kind of touched on it in the middle, particularly when it is the patient who gets it and is trying to figure out how to articulate it and find connection with people who are willing to sit with, I'm leaving. So Jill, what I come out of today with is a whole bunch of new information, especially thinking about like the dementia waving and the handshake, which is something really practical I can take forward. And a lot of appreciation for the folks who have been willing and able to serve as healthcare workers right now. I know we keep on calling them heroes and that's lost some energy, but really I appreciate your willingness to share the story of what it really felt like to try and help these families, not only COVID families, but everybody who lost somebody that they love this year. Uh, thank you for coming and being part of Anchor and Flame. I really appreciate it. Oh, no, thank you. Uh, I, I listen to a lot of people. It's rare that anyone wants to listen to me. So thanks. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Thank you for listening. Please share this with a friend and add to the discussion any ideas you have. Finally, consider rating Anchor and Flame on iTunes or wherever you hoard your podcasts. Have a good day. This is WCN, the Whole Care Network. You talk, we listen.